Welcome to the podcast for 1715, Looking at the Past, with Dr. Aaron Morton in the Department of History at the University of New Brunswick. The topic of this week's podcast is Asian Canadian Art Matters. I'm taking this phrase, Asian Canadian Art Matters, from a recent article in Asia Art Archive from scholar Dr. Alice Ming-Wei Jim. Dr. Jim explores the reasons why Asian Canadian art has been categorized and classified in certain ways in the art world in Canada. She argues in this article, which she published in 2010, that there has been a renewed interest in Asian Canadian art, especially in terms of the number of exhibitions, conferences, and publications on this topic. And she asks, why might Asian Canadian art matter now? Canadian art matters now more than ever in the ways it compels a constant probing of what constitutes cultural identifications such as Canadianness and Asianness applied from different sectors a crossing of borders to look comparatively, responsibly into other worldviews, the building and maintaining viable and diverse networks of collective critical inquiry, and the affirmation of the historical continuity of similar art experiences and prior social injustices, which question precisely the politics and consequences of exhibiting the very conditions of the presence of Asian Canadian, forever dynamic and self-critical, but visible. This, in terms of tracing the importance of Asian Canadian art in Canadian context, so things like galleries, exhibitions, publications, I'm going to turn to another one of her projects, which is the Ethnocultural Art Histories Research Group at Concordia University. Recently, this group, in collaboration with an online arts and publishing forum called Art Text, published a series of pamphlets and uh, documents relating to tracing Asian Canadian and Black Canadian artistic production in Canada. In one of these documents, the group writes about the ways in which tracing Asian Canadian art histories is a complex history. They begin with the effects of what they call the racist social and cultural paranoia that has come to be known as, quote, yellow peril, the perceived threat of Asians in mortally dangerous to European civilizations. In tracing this concept of yellow peril, which also comes to us this week in the article by Henry Hang Liu entitled What the Pandemic Means for Chinese Canadian Art Communities, we need to understand how exclusionary laws in the nation state of Canada applied to Asian Canadians. And the other important thing for us to keep in mind, as Dr. Jim's work has shown elsewhere, is that we're not talking about a recent category of migrants, of Asian Canadian migrants, or people from Asia who come to North America for all kinds of reasons, educational reasons, job-related reasons, family-related reasons. We're not talking about that contemporary form of migration, although it does have an impact in the way that the Canadian art world, like all structures, thinks about the category Asian Canadian. What Dr. Jim's work does is that she traces very carefully the historical legacy of Asian presence in the Americas dating back to the 17th century. So that's really important. We're talking about a longer history and a longer colonial interaction between Asia and North America. Historical lens that we should apply 
to Asian presence in Canada, and this is coming from Dr. Jim's uh, research group, the Ethnocultural Art Histories Research Group. And what they say in their document is that Asians in Canada have endured the government's implementation of discriminatory policies, such as the Chinese head tax, that's from 1885 to 1923, the Chinese Exclusion Act from 1923 to 1947, and the internment of Japanese Canadians during the Second World War. They write, a historically pervasive and deeply damaging colonial mindset, yellow peril has rendered Asian Canadians as hyphenated citizens and imposed various exclusions from cultural practices to institutional policies promoting a white Eurocentric Canadian national identity. While exclusionary laws are no longer in place, the effects of yellow peril remain continuously felt by Asian Canadians who continue to negotiate stereotypes that wrongfully portray them as quote, lower class citizens. They continue, art by Asian Canadian artists also face stigmatization through the Orientalist optic as non-Asian audiences notoriously expect their work to embody a bridge between East and West. The barriers faced by Asian Canadians ultimately resulted in a history of marginalized readings of their artworks and a near invisibility within the Canadian historical canon. These readings must be challenged in order to establish a pluralistic discourse of Canadian art, end quote. Canadian art in Canadian art circles, uh, as it's been studied extensively by Dr. Jim and her research group. And I want to kind of draw on this article by Henry Hang Lu, which discusses a more contemporary manifestation of this specific type of anti-Asian racism in Canada. So what he's talking about in his article in Canadian Art, which is also assigned for this week, it's entitled What the Pandemic Means for Chinese Canadian Art Communities. And he's discussing the more recent uh, manifestations of what all of these scholars are terming yellow peril in quotations. So Lou writes, and I'm quoting him here, In early March, I received a message on WeChat from my mother. Be careful. Avoid people who are aggressive. I thought to myself, I do that in general anyway. I don't know. I didn't know then that she, I didn't know then that she had heard witness accounts of racist attacks towards someone she knew and that that had made her concerned about my safety. And then COVID-19 blew up in Canada. As COVID-19 continues to spread across the country, a renewed wave of anti-Asian sentiments with a strong likeness to yellow peril is evidenced by attacks on and fear towards Asian Canadian communities. An internet search will bring you numerous reported incidents, most commonly physical attacks and vandalism, let alone the unreported ones. Being Chinese myself, like many friends, I was afraid of wearing masks in public when the virus reached closer. In a time where people are hyper alert, wearing a mask while Asian invites extra suspicions. Coughing while Asian can bring more than just eye rolls. At this point, as long as you look Asian, you are likely to be targeted and you are likely to feel you need to be more cautious. Henry Hanglu is saying here is, is indeed very comparable to the history that Dr. Jim and her research group are tracing. So to kind of summarize this, what they're looking at is the original forms of anti-Asian racism that appeared in the Americas, and specifically they're, they're concerned with North America, in terms of tracing Asian diasporic migration to this continent beginning in the 17th century, as I said. This history in terms of Dr. Jim's larger work, and some of this work she has done in combination with Dr. Alexander Chang as they are co-editors of a journal entitled Asian Diasporic Visual Cultures in the Americas. So part of this, um, I'm also quoting from her larger research, is that it's important to understand how positions 
how, how the Canadian state positions histories of Asian presence here. And Dr. Jim and Dr. Chang, they're talking about Asian presence in what they acknowledge is occupied Indigenous territories. And as they put it, understanding this history, so understanding these originary moments of anti-Asian racism, and specifically Canadian state-led anti-Asian policies, which started later at more in the, in the 19th century in terms of when Canada was formed as a state. They describe this history as a complex system of continual movement, migratory flows and cultural transmissions, and the idea of Asian diasporas in the plural. And I, that's a quotation. And what they're saying here really is that this concept of Asian diaspora, you could also apply it to the concept that Dr. Jim is working through in her other articles. So the concept of Asian Canadianness, if we're talking about the settler state of Canada, as opposed to the Americas more broadly, this concept of diaspora is really important to understand uh, because what Dr. Jim is saying is that there are trans-regional uh, concepts of a, what Asian American means. So America is meaning larger than the United States. By America as I'm talking here in terms of the continent, because that's what Dr. Jim and Dr. Chang are, are pointing to. So as they say, uh, this can be traced back to the 17th century and actually as early as the 16th century in terms of the, the, the originary moments of Asian mi migration, particularly on the West Coast of the Americas. So how do we understand these connections between Asian diaspora and the Americas as, a, as this long historical trajectory dating back, you know, in the 19th century, we're talking about state-led anti-Asian exclusionary policies. In the uh, 18th century, we're talking about like periods of global migration and also global expansion of, of European empires like the British Empire, which uh, if you think back to a few weeks ago when we talked about Dr. Lisa Loeb's work and her concept of the intimacies of four continents, this is, this is really the period that she's talking about, right? So the 18th century in terms of when we have these uh, broad imperial expansion. So Dr. Lowe uses the British Empire as an example, and she traces this history through British colonial expansion into Hong Kong and how that impacts the migratory movement of Asians in other parts of the world where the British Empire was colonizing. So places like the Caribbean and then later places like uh, the Americas, particularly the West Coast of the Americas. So this is a really, uh, you know, it's a, it's a complex way to understand these migratory flows and the formations of diaspora. But one of the things, one of the takeaways here that I want you to think about is that these uh, migration, so Asian migration to uh, the, the hemisphere of the Americas and also the continent of North America, it's not a new history, right? This is a deep history. This is a history that can, that can be traced back hundreds of years. So when you think about that, you have to kind of question, as Dr. Jim and Dr. Chan are, what then is the basis of more contemporary exclusions from places like the art world? What is it then that... Uh, what types of racial discrimination and racism are impacting curatorial decisions, for example, to understand Asian Canadian art exhibitions in a particular way? And really what their larger work points to is that Asian Canadian art is usually seen through an Orientalist lens of outsider positioning in the nation state so that Asian Canadians are understood as not truly belonging to the Canadian art scene because uh, the art world is positioning them as not truly belonging to Canada either. So to understand this, to understand Asian diaspora in the Americas in terms of an art historical methodology and in terms of thinking about the art world, what Chang and Jim write 
is that we need to, quote, consider what shape, form, or method a hemispheric transnational Asian diasporic approach to visual culture may take. They argue that this should be a purposeful one and a key epistemological, intellectual, and creative challenge. So epistemological, that's a big word, but really what they're saying is that we need to think about how we know the things that we know. So how, for example, can we understand Asian Canadian hate crimes that are seeing a real uptick in 2021 since the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic? How can we understand what Henry Henglu is saying about uh, you know what it means to, as he puts it, cough while Asian, wear a mask while Asian, exist while Asian in Canadian society under COVID-19. Really the takeaway here is that these are not new forms of racial discrimination. There is an uptick in hate crimes against Asians, and this has been you know heavily documented in Canada and in the United States and in parts of Europe, but that anti-Asian hostility and racism is not new. Anti-Asian racism is built into the foundations of the Canadian nation state because the Canadian state uh, did things such as the, you know, the Chinese head tax law to ensure that not too many Chinese people migrated to Canada back in the 19th century. So it was this, this racist form of exclusion in which the Canadian state wanted particular forms of Asian and, and in this case Chinese labor, but did not want too much Asian migration to the continent either. So that's why these racially based laws were, were put into place. So in other words, anti-Asian racism is not a new experience. It is a historical experience in the Americas. And I just want to conclude with some of these thoughts regarding uh, cont the contemporary moment of anti-Asian anti-Asian racism in Canada specifically. Um, so at the beginning of the pandemic, as Henry Liu was writing about, that article uh, kind of came out in uh, the, you know, the, the first wave of the pandemic in Canada, really the early phases, uh, about a year ago now, so March 2020. And if you fast forward to uh, to right now, so uh, March 2021, you can sort of backdate and look at data now in terms of the forms of racism that were being launched and targeted against Asians in Canada. So what's happened now is that there are people who are looking at those statistics, looking at these incidents and documenting them. Um, because without these types of concrete data, without this this documentation, there's not a lot of believability from the general Canadian populace about what these hate crimes mean. So uh, there's researchers now who are working on this, who are working on this data collection, and also just documenting the range of anti-Asian uh, racism from things like bank clerks refusing to serve Asian patrons. And I'm, I'm taking this, this example from a Huffington Post article uh, that was just published on March 3rd of this year by Amy Chung. And she's she kind of writes about these examples. So that would be one incident that will be documented by these researchers. And then you kind of take that all the way up to uh, somebody hurling racial slurs, to somebody actually engaging in physical violence. So what they found or what they're finding, this group of researchers that Chung is documenting in her article, is that many people are not filing police reports. Many people are feeling that this discrimination will not be believed. Um, as Chung writes, one victim said police were called after a racist incident escalated with her neighbors. And after speaking to both parties, the police reminded her about freedom of speech in Canada. Um, but she says she was baffled by this response after spending 20 years in Canada 
uh, coming and immigrating from Korea, uh, she says, this victim, this unnamed victim says, I have sometimes faced racism in Canada, but the experience of these past two to three months have been terrible. So there's kind of a, a an, an incommensurability, if you will, between what the police are telling victims of anti-Asian hate crimes and racism and the kind of experience of that, right? The, the, the understanding that these things will be taken seriously. So I just want to conclude with that example. And I, I also just want to, again, thank you for your attention this week in the podcast. And I will pick up on some of these themes on Asian Canadian art matters in this week's lecture. So thanks very much.